0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We're going to continue looking at a passage that we started studying last week. If you will remember, Luke chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus had been invited to dine at the home of a Pharisee ruler on the Sabbath day. And Luke records a rather lengthy account of what happened at this meal. The whole dinner is recorded in Luke 14 verses 1 to 24. Now last week we considered the first 11 verses, which is really the first, the first two uh, parts of that passage. And we looked at those verses, those passages, those two distinct texts, and we kind of drew out some lessons that Jesus was teaching those who had assembled there for that meal. In verses 1 through 6, we remember that Jesus healed a man of dropsy, a medical condition in which a person retains fluid, and that that causes internal swelling. And in that miracle, Jesus was teaching the Pharisees that he had come to redeem people that had been cursed and afflicted by the fall. The lawyers and the Pharisees thought that because of their piety and their obedience to the law, that they had some kind of special standing before God, that they were okay, that they were just fine. But Jesus here was showing them that they did not really recognize their true spiritual condition. He revealed through this miracle, their need for salvation. And also the fact that God had sent him, Jesus, the Messiah, for that very purpose, that Jesus came as God's representative as God's Messiah to redeem them from their own sinfulness and truly bring them into the kingdom of God. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus taught them, taught the lawyers and Pharisees at that dinner, that humility was an identifying mark of the kingdom and that those who truly would follow after Jesus must practice humility. Remember that Jesus Uh, saw the invited guests as they were coming in jockeying for the best seats at the table, an action that really illustrated their own haughtiness and their own pride. Instead, Jesus told them a parable calling them to humility, not just in terms of their relationship with one another, although that was important, but even more so in their relationship with God, especially in light of the fact that they should humble themselves by recognizing that Jesus was indeed God's Messiah. And that in order to enter into the kingdom, they must repent of their sins and believe in him. Remember, Jesus gave us that, that great principle in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He was saying there, that God would exalt them by giving them a place in the kingdom, by giving them true eternal fellowship with him if they humbled themselves if they humbled themselves in their recognition of Jesus and their, in their recognition of, of what they really were and, and what their true spiritual need was. But if they would refuse to humble themselves, God would humble them. He would humble them eternally. Not just in, for a few moments or in terms of this life only, but He would humble them eternally by judging them for their sins. The sin especially rooted in pride a pride that exalted themselves before God. And today we're coming to the last two lessons at this dinner, verses 12 to 24. Jesus is still here around the dinner table, around the table with the host and the guest that he has invited. And he continues to teach these lessons that, are, that, that really touch on the importance of humility. Again, humility both in terms of our human relationships in this life, But also in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of uh, in terms of our eternal life, especially in how we will participate in the kingdom of God. So we'll look at the text beginning in verse twelve, Luke fourteen, verse twelve, and read down to verse twenty-four. He, that's referring to Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, "When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid." But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who, had, who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of, yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry. And said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. We can see, I think, two parts to this passage Verses 12-14, through 14, where Jesus is teaching on the importance of generosity. And verses 15-24, to 24, where Jesus tells a parable about how one participates in the kingdom of God. So let's look at these uh, in, in order. So again, if we're kind of piggybacking on last week's lesson, again, there are four, sort of four scenes with four lessons. So I'm going to continue on. If last week we saw lessons 1 and 2, we're going to now see lesson number 3. And that lesson is this, that those who follow Jesus practice humility by showing generosity to the needy. Those who follow Jesus practice humility by showing generosity to the needy. Again, we see this in verses 12 through 14. This lesson really is an elaboration of, an extension of, the previous lesson in verses 7 through 11. In fact, a lot of commentaries will bunch verses 7 to 14 together as one unit. I think it's a a special example of what Jesus is talking about in verses 7 through 11, that one way that we can practice humility is by generosity, especially by showing a kind of generosity that cannot be repaid. Now, let's be honest. We are selfish people, are we not? Selfishness and pride lie at the heart of our sinfulness. We believe in our heart of hearts as just natural human beings that it is more blessed to receive than to give. That is sort of the natural disposition of the human heart. In the center of our selfish hearts, it is natural to think how we might gain from other people. And so oftentimes, our generosity, human generosity, is really rooted in a selfishness that expects something back, expects something in return. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. We want something back from our giving. That's just our mentality. But that is not humility. True humility will give without any expectation of return. In our text, back in verse 12, Jesus turns his attention from the invited guests back to the host who had invited him to dinner. This man is a ruler of the Pharisees, a a very important and influential man in the community. He may have also even been a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the, 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 the ruling council of the Jews. He is probably, most likely, a man of means. He's probably spared no expense for this meal in inviting people over. When you invite somebody to your house, you don't serve them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, do you? You may not serve top of the line, but you're not going to be cheap about it, right? So this man has probably spent some money for this meal, in part probably to impress those who have come over. He's probably invited members of his family, uh, close friends other important religious and civic leaders. But Jesus exhorts him here not to invite his friends or his siblings or his relatives or rich neighbors to dine with him, but instead to invite the social outcasts, the despised, the marginalized. He identifies them in verse 13 as the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Example, members of those who who live on the margins, those who are truly needy. Now, why does Jesus make this exhortation to the Pharisee? Well, if the Pharisee is hosting a dinner for his friends and siblings and relatives and rich neighbors, they can at some point later reciprocate his generosity. They too have status. They too have have means. They have wealth to invite him into their homes and to repay him for the generosity that He has shown them. But the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, they don't have such means. They can't throw a banquet. They can't invite Him over to dinner, at least not one that would be expected for a man of His social standing. They cannot repay Him. And so if the Pharisees invites the least of these to dine with Him, He will be doing it solely and completely for their sake, for their benefit. They have nothing to give. He has nothing to gain. That's true, genuine generosity. It's born out of a sincere humility. That's the kind of humility and that's the kind of generosity that marks the kingdom of God and that must mark the followers of Jesus. True generosity gives of its own accord. True generosity comes out of a heart of love and service for others, knowing that one cannot and will not receive back in recompense for what has been given. Now, just so that we don't make the mistake and go too far with this, Jesus here, I don't think, is forbidding meals with your friends and your family and your neighbors, right? We love Chris's parents that are in town. We now are able to get together. For meals, This is not forbidding those kinds of meals to share together. Jesus is not saying don't ever have any of these kinds of meals, but I think he is saying don't allow them to be exclusive. It's not that you can never dine with friends and family, but Jesus is calling us to be generous to those who cannot repay, to those who live on the margins of our lives, to those who have needs that we can meet. Part of true discipleship is not restricting ourselves to comfortable relationships, but giving ourselves to people who make us uncomfortable by their social standing. And although our church is probably a little bit more homogeneous than other churches, I was thinking last night of the example in 1 Corinthians 14, where the wealthy and the poor were coming together for church service, but they were eating separately. These kind of things that Jesus is calling to us here certainly can be for those outside and should be. It's It's a way of evangelism. But even more so within the body of the church, we ought not to divide ourselves by by social status or by by economic position or or social standing that we as the body of Christ should come together as one where we can give to others who are in need and not expect anything in return. Now, why would Jesus give this? instruction i think that there are a couple of re- actually there are four reasons why i think jesus would give this instruction to this pharisee let's start with the, the most immediate in terms of the context the immediate context here jesus is speaking to a leading pharisee he's speaking to those others at the table other pharisees and lawyers who were again people of means and, and people of status We know that based upon the the situation back in verses 1 through 6, that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Jesus interpreted their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. He also knows their reputation. He's seen their conduct and behavior. And He knows that the root motivation for all that they do is pride. The Pharisees have no problem showing hospitality to one another because they love one another. But they love one another selfishly. They love one another because of what they can receive from one another. They love one another because they are all alike. They all have the same social standing, the same financial position, the same religious convictions. They are comfortable with one another. They relate to one another out of a self-serving love, a self-serving motivation. They are serving one another because of how they will be served by others. And that is rooted in pride. Pride is motivating motivating their relationships. And that kind of pride is antithetical to the character of God and to the character of the kingdom. Now again, remember, these are lawyers and Pharisees who thought they were okay with God. They thought they had right standing with God. And yet their lives look so different than the character of God. So Jesus here is really calling the lawyers and Pharisees out. He is exposing their sin. He's pointing them to the character of God. He's calling them to repentance. And to look to him, to look to Jesus as the ideal character, as one who shows unselfish love, selfless love and service to others. Second, I think Jesus' instruction here to the Pharisees and lawyers reminds them and reminds us of God's heart for the needy and the marginalized. And throughout the Old Testament, God reminded the Israelites to show compassion and poor for the sick, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Obviously, the Pharisees and the lawyers here have given lip service to what has been clearly revealed in the Old Testament. They have outright ignored the provisions given in the law, which again is ironic because they claim to obey the law faithfully. And so Jesus here is rebuking them and calling them to account. They should call and invite the poor and the needy, the crippled, the lame, the blind, to their feasts, if nothing more than to imitate God's compassion for the dispossessed. If nothing more than simply obeying the law of God. This is God's heart. This is what God had revealed in the Old Testament. God is concerned for the needy, which gets us, I think, to the third reason why I think Jesus gives this teaching, gives this exhortation, which is that this scenario here, this instruction illustrates the gospel itself. The kind of generosity to which Jesus calls us is the kind of generosity that God has shown to us in Christ. Right? The Bible uses the images of of poverty and disease and disability and blindness as descriptions of our spiritual condition. These are all things, these are all conditions that have resulted from the fall. And they're illustrations to us of what we really are spiritually. We've been seeing that throughout the Gospels, right? That when Jesus does these miracles, He's doing a physical work in their lives, but He's using them as illustrations for who He really is and what He has come to do and what is the nature of His kingdom. Out of His compassion, out of God's compassion for us, out of His pity for us in our need and helplessness, God purposed to save and redeem us as His people. He sent His own Son into the world to die for our sins and to bear the judgment of God for those sins. And in return, more than just simply forgiving us of our sins, Jesus, actually God, through Jesus, calls us to The banqueting table. He calls us to His banqueting table. Not just for a single meal, but for an eternal feast. This is the ground and center of Jesus' ministry. This redemptive purpose. This is why Jesus came. He came to make us right with God so that we might fellowship and feast with God forever. When Jesus began His ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus announced His ministry at the synagogue in Nazareth, He quoted from Isaiah 61. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, although... We see some touch points there, right? The poor and the blind. So not all those metaphors are used, but we see the idea there of why Jesus came. He is not just coming just for the physically poor and the physically needy. He has come for the spiritually poor, the spiritually blind, the spiritually captive through His ministry. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 and 7 echoes the same idea, the nature of the coming Messiah's ministry. He says, the prophet says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Do you see the compassion there? of God for those who are needy, for the poor and for the blind and for the deaf. What generosity we see in Christ's ministry to us. And again, why would God do this? Why would God do this? The answer, friends, is only grace. God does this to be gracious. He does it out of a heart of love for us. His generosity here comes to us by grace. That's what it means to give. To truly give is to give by grace. And we know that His generosity is real because we cannot repay Him. What can we give to the glorious God, to the awesome God who saves us for our redemption? What can we give? We can't give anything. We cannot repay Him. And so Jesus' exhortation here to the Pharisee, to his host, is a quasi-parable of what God has done for us in Christ. And the fourth reason for this exhortation here, this instruction, is that Jesus, I think, is calling us to imitate God here. We've seen the character of God in the gospel. We've seen his, his true generosity. And now because we are recipients of God's grace, We imitate Him. We imitate His generosity by befriending and ministering to those living in the margins, those who are most in need of God's grace. Ephesians chapter one, verses one, or Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus, I think, is echoing here Paul's words. He is calling us to imitate God. And when we do so, we bear witness to God's generosity in the gospel. God's generosity to save us from our spiritual need. This is what Jesus taught them. But notice that Jesus explains in verse 14, he goes further to talk about the reward, right? There's a great reward to those who showed generosity to the needy. Jesus notes the great blessing in verse 14. He says, You will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus notes a great blessing here for those who are generous to the poor and the afflicted. And in an odd sort of maybe paradoxical kind of way, they cannot bless us in return, and yet we receive the greater blessing when we give. Have you ever experienced that before? If you're truly giving out of... True generosity, Christ-like generosity. It, it is true what, what Paul writes, or Luke writes for us, recording the words of Paul in Acts 2.25. He says, In all things I have shown, shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Those words are true. We have to have that experience in our lives. We receive the greater blessing by giving out of a heart of true generosity than we do by receiving. And what is the source of that blessing? Well, it's God himself. Though those who receive our generosity cannot repay us, Jesus says that we will be repaid. For you, verse 14, you will be repaid. That's a promise. Now, Jesus doesn't say there explicitly who does the repaying, but just the, the language behind this, right? Jesus says this in the passive voice. You will be repaid. And typically, if you're, you know your grammar, passive voice means you have to have an agent. You will be repaid by someone. In the Bible, oftentimes, the by someone is not listed when the someone is God. You will be repaid, and the assumption there is that God will be the one to repay. God will repay us. If generosity is part of our discipleship, then God will reward us for our obedience to Him. And our reward that we would receive from Him is far greater than anything that we could be given by other people. Even the word blessed in verse 14 is a word that points to God as a source of blessing. This is the word that's typically used to speak of divine blessing. It occurs in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are, right? All those blessed that word there is a word of divine blessing that God Himself blesses His people. And notice the greatness of that blessing. When does God repay our generosity? It's not that we give in expectation that God will return that reward to us now, but that reward comes, He says, at the resurrection of the just. At the end of time. On that great day when God draws history to a close and raises our bodies in resurrection glory. Then He will reward us. Not with temporary earthly trinkets, but with glorious eternal rewards that, ro- that moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves can never break in and steal. What motivation then there is for us to humble ourselves and to be generous to those in need. Our God delights in our generosity and He will richly reward us for it. So that's the third lesson, verses 12 through 14. Jesus here at the dinner table is teaching the lawyers and the Pharisees, but even more so us as his followers, that as disciples of Jesus, we practice humility by showing generosity to the needy. That brings us then to the fourth and final lesson, lesson number four. Jesus warns against missing the kingdom of God. Jesus warns in verses 15 and 24 against missing the kingdom of God. Jesus had just made that exhortation in verses 12 through 14, and one of the invited guests heard what Jesus said about generosity. He responded with his own comment. He says in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So in light of the, the neediness and desperation of the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, in this life, there will be no lack in the kingdom of God. Though there is neediness now, there will not be forever, and those who are in the kingdom will be eternally satisfied by what God provides. And perhaps this guest is just meditating upon this fact. And he is exclaiming here the great news that in the kingdom of God, we would feast at Messiah's banquet at the end of the age. But there is one thing that is a little bit troubling in what he says. This man thought about the kingdom of God as merely something future. As something that is only still to come. Something that he and his fellow Pharisees and lawyers looked forward to with great anticipation. And certainly that is true. There is a time coming when the kingdom will be in its fullest manifestation, its fullest glory. The future messianic banquet would be a time of great celebration and joy. God's people would fellowship with God as we see symbolized by that meal. Again, in in, in the ancient world, the meal times were times of fellowship. We even experience it today, right? Whether we have a a church luncheon or whether we have one another over to our homes and we share meals together, there is something special about the fellowship that takes place around a meal, around a table. And so if the poor and crippled and blind and lame are there, uh, they, they, they too would be satisfied to the fullest degree right there with the Pharisees and the lawyers. But this man lacked understanding in thinking that the kingdom was only something in the future. In fact, he tells, he corrects this man by telling this parable, that's sometimes called the parable of the great banquet in verses 16 to 23. In that parable, a very wealthy man planned a festive banquet. He sent out invitations to many people, much like we would do for a, a wedding reception, for instance. But when you get a wedding reception or maybe an a, a, a invitation or an invitation to a graduation party or a birthday party, there's usually set in there, in that invitation, the date and the time when you are expected to show up. But the invitation system in ancient times was kind of a two-part thing. There was an advance notice that one was, was going to host a, a meal or a banquet or a feast of some sort. And those guests with RSVP, yes, I will, I will come and I, I, will, I will be there. But then, when the banquet was ready, a, another invitation, sort of a follow-up invitation, we sent to let the people know who had RSVP'd. Now is the time to gather together. Now the feast is prepared. Now the feast is ready. And those who had already sent in their previous invitation, those who had already responded, RSVP'd, saying they were coming, were expected to show up. They had made a commitment to show up, and now they should show up. But these get so that's what happens here, right? The, the, the master sends out his servant. The invitations are given. The positive responses are received. Then when the banquet is actually ready, he sends the servant out again and lets them know the banquet is ready. Now is the time to assemble. And the guests started making excuses as to why they could not attend. Jesus provides three examples here in verses 18 to 20. The first man declined to come because he has just bought a field. He had just bought a a field. He needed to go inspect it. In fact, the word must in verse 18 there is a word that indicates necessity or priority. This is a urgent matter for him. Now, some land deals at the time required a post-purchase inspection. In other words, you made the deal, finalized it, and you were to go out, the purchaser was supposed to go out and inspect the field to make sure it was okay. But that inspection wasn't necessarily urgent. This man could have attended the banquet and inspected his property later. But he uses this land purchase as an excuse to miss the banquet after he already committed to attending. In verse 19, the second man declined because... He had just bought five yoke of oxen. That's ten oxen total. And that number of oxen would indicate that this man had a rather large field. is was probably very wealthy. The normal landowner would own maybe one or possibly two yoke of oxen. But this man had five. He needed five to plow his field. So he's a man of means. He's a man of wealth. He too had accepted the invitation to the host's banquet here. But the priority for him is to go and examine his oxen. Again, the word examine means to test or to prove or to scrutinize. He wants to go try them out. He wants to go see what he has in them. He wants to to prove them, see their their size and their ability. But he had already made the commitment to come to the banquet. He could have examined his oxen any time. Yet he cancels, pulls out, excuses himself from the banquet for this purpose. In verse 20, the third man declined because he had recently gotten married. And there are some times in the scriptures, in the Old Testament particularly, particular, where, where a married man is given relief from certain responsibilities like going off to war within the first year of marriage. But this man does not seem, to, that one of those exceptions does not seem to apply to him. Women were not typically invited to attend these kinds of banquets. And so the man would have had to leave his wife to go and to attend. Again, that might seem a little... Cruel by modern standards, right? Guys and their wives at home when like, they go and celebrate a great feast. And yet that was what was customary at the time. This man really has again no excuse, no good excuse not to attend the banquet, but he declines. Again, after having already committed to come. Well, the servant returns home. He reports the news to the master of the house that these people who have been invited have canceled their Reservations. And notice in verse 21, the response of the master. He says, and it says in verse 21 that he became angry. That word means to be indignant. Or to be full of rage. He is absolutely incensed at the rejection that he is experiencing from these invited guests. So he, he tells his servant, go back out. He's not going to cancel. He's not going to postpone the banquet for some future time that would be more convenient for them. He intends to go forward with his feast, so he tells the servant, go back out. Go into the streets, the, the wide and busy streets that would lead to the market or lead to the, the gathering places. Go to the busy places. Go into the lanes, go into the narrower streets, the, the side streets or the alleyways. And invite, not people, but Again, the, the needy, the, the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, those whom Jesus exhorted the Pharisees and lawyers to invite to their own banquet back in verse 13. He, he indicates here that those needy people would respond positively if they were invited. But the servant, I love, it, I love the servant's response here, he has already anticipated his master's request, right? He knows what his master is going to ask him to do. He's anticipated that. He's already invited the needy people to come, and yet there's still room for more at the feast. And so the master gives additional instructions in verse 23. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. The highways and the hedges there refer to places out of town, remote places outside the city. The highways were the the places that led out of town to other places surrounding areas. The hedges were typically what served as fences around fields and vineyards that were often, again, outside in the countryside. In other words, the master is calling people from outside of town, probably even people he doesn't know, calling them to come to his banquet so that his house may be filled, that it may be filled to capacity. And again, he tells the servant here to compel people. That word typically means to force or to require. Now, it's not against their will. We would interpret it in this case to maybe be more urgently persuade, to appeal to them, urgently compel them, urgently, uh, 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 strongly urge them to come to this meal. The servant is to go out and make a compelling case that will induce outsiders to come, make the long journey ...to this banquet. Notice again in verse 23... ...the master desires his house to be filled. He does not want a poorly attended banquet. He is throwing a feast. He is sparing no expense. He wants people to come and to enjoy this banquet. He wants a full celebration... ...with the maximum number of attendees as possible. Notice that Jesus concludes the parable... ...with a note about the original invited guests... ...in verse 24... He says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The banquet's not been postponed to a later date. He doesn't reschedule to make it a more accommodating time for his guests. He doesn't plan a makeup celebration. He says, those guests who fail to come after first accepting the invitation would not participate at all in this banquet. Those final words shed light on the spiritual lesson of this parable again let's consider the context Jesus says here for I tell you none of those men were invited who were invited shall taste my banquet Jesus is again telling this parable to the lawyers and the Pharisees these were the religious elites these were the models models of Jewish faithfulness and piety certainly these are the men whom God most delighted in But like the man whose comment initiated the parable, these men in their spiritual holiness assumed that they would be present at the Messianic banquet in the kingdom of God. But they are spiritually blind. And in their blindness, they did not recognize the fact that the kingdom of God was not simply future. It was present. It was here. It had arrived in the person and ministry of Jesus. And we can see here how the invited guests of the parable, we can see a parallel on how the invited guests of the parable and how the Jews of this time, Pharisees and lawyers, how they responded to the announcement of the kingdom, right? Just as the invited guests in the parable accepted the initial invitation, so also the Jews as the descendants of Israel had accepted the Mosaic Covenant as God's invitation to live with them, live with him in relationship. Paul, when he is speaking about Israel, reviews their special status as God's people in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Israel's participation in the Old Covenant covenant, signaled their willingness to live in relationship with God. And when the New Covenant was announced by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the ongoing prophets, their continuation in the Old Covenant signaled their hope and expectation for the New when it arrived. They were living under the Old Covenant in anticipation of the New Covenant that was to come, so that when it came, they could participate in that. But just as the invited guests refused to attend when the announcement was made that the banquet was prepared and ready, so also the Jews failed to enter into the kingdom when God when Jesus announced that it had arrived. They rejected the invitation in order to pursue the trivial religious matters that they were caught up in. So like the host of the parable who invites the poor and the needy and those out of town, Jesus extended the invitation to enter the kingdom of God to those who were unexpected, He extended the invitation to the unlikely, those who we think would not attend, those we think probably shouldn't be there, right? To the ordinary people, to the sinful people like tax collectors and prostitutes, to the helpless, to the sick, to the needy, and even to the Gentiles. We can't help here but see a foreshadowing of the Gentile mission in this parable. What was rejected by the Jews is offered freely to the Gentiles. In fact, Christ sent out His servants, the apostles, into the world to compel them, to urgently persuade them, to strongly urge them to enter in a mission that continues today through the church. At the same time, because the lawyers and the Pharisees rejected Jesus and failed to enter the kingdom of God on His terms, Jesus says they will be excluded from the messianic banquet. They will not eat at Christ's table. They will not only miss the blessing intended for them, they will suffer God's wrath for their rejection of his Messiah. How ironic then are the words of the man who spoke in verse 16. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Not recognizing that he would not be one of those people if he rejected Christ's Messiah. So we need to be mindful of the lesson here. First, we need to heed the warning of rejecting Christ and missing the kingdom of God. We must not be deluded by spiritual haughtiness or esteem ourselves more highly than we should or ought. We must not think that because we we attend a church or belong to a Christian family or perform certain Christian practices that we have a place in the kingdom. We properly respond to the invitation uh, that Christ gives to us to enter the kingdom of God by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ for Christ is God's provision for our salvation. We must not neglect or forsake the weightier matters of the gospel for the trivial and lesser matters of life. The danger of missing the kingdom, the danger of missing the messianic banquet is a very real danger. And so we should examine ourselves just as Jesus called the Pharisees and the lawyers to make a real examination of their lives. Have I responded properly to the invitation? Have I repented of my sins? Am I trusting in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ? Second, we must enter into the kingdom and take our seat at the Messiah's banquet. Jesus here is foreshadowing what is both what is ours both now and in the future. As we enter into the kingdom, we have fellowship with Christ right now. We are fellowshipping with Christ right here in a corporate gathering of the church. We fellowship with Christ as we leave these doors and walk in Him throughout the week. We have fellowship with Christ right now, even now in the midst of this present evil age. Aren't you glad for that beautiful respite that we have in Christ? That we live in this world that is so chaotic and tumultuous. That we have entered into the kingdom, that we have relationship with Christ, we fellowship, him, fellowship with Him even now. And brothers and sisters, the beauty of that is that that fellowship will never end. It will not end at death. It will not end when this life is over. It continues on into eternity. Hear the words of Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's us. That's what we can look forward to. That call first went out when Jesus began his ministry nearly 2,000 years ago when he said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that call goes out today. It continues right now even as I'm preaching. These very words, this very idea, this very truth is being spoken to us. If you're not a Christian, hear the invitation of the Lord Jesus to come to his banquet so that his house may be full and so that your joy may be complete. May God help us to learn these lessons. May we be generous to the least of these, remembering that God was first generous to us in Christ. And may we hear and heed the warning of Jesus so that we will not miss the kingdom, but enter in and delight at Christ's banquet table forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel truth and our passage in Luke reminding us of what we really are and reminding us, Lord, of who You really are and reminding us of the grace that You have shown to us in Jesus. That though we are unworthy of relationship with You, You have made it possible for us by grace and by grace alone because You set Your love upon us And in time, you sent forth your Son to come into this world, to live the life that we could not live, to go to the cross and die in our place and be raised again so that we could have life and fellowship with you forever. I pray, Lord, you would help us to make an examination of our lives that if we call ourselves Christians, Lord, that we would not be deceived or deluded, that we would truly examine to see whether we have repented of our sins and are trusting in you, and that you would give to us the assurance of faith because of what Christ has done for us. We pray for those, Lord, this morning that don't know you. They've come in, Lord, maybe self-consciously, knowing that they're not a Christian or perhaps even just unsure. I pray that today, Lord, that they would see the glory of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that it would penetrate deep into their heart, Lord, and that you would produce faith in them. Give them grace, Lord, to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ and so enter into your glorious kingdom. May all that you wish to accomplish, Lord, through these words, be accomplished for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.